Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of Crossroads Church in Sandy, Utah. Join us as we listen to a sermon from a recent Sunday morning service. So we continue this morning in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, we have been taking the Ten Commandments one at a time. And we will continue that today, even though the command today in verse 13 is merely two words in the Hebrew. So a sermon today on two words, but two important words. Exodus chapter 20, 20 verse 13. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Our Father, we come to you as we open up your word. And as we consider these ten words, the Ten Commandments, ask that you would, as we have prayed already, Lord, expose those sinful, dark corners of our hearts, Lord, that are holding on to sins that are opposed to your good and righteous law. And we pray that as we consider that, you would, appoint, you would point us afresh again to the gospel of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have forgiveness, the redemption from our sins, the Lord, and that you would use these moments as we open up your word to strengthen and equip us, to sanctify us for your great name, for the cause of your gospel, for the building up of your church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, the sixth commandment is only two words in the original Hebrew. We translate it in four words in English. You shall not murder. The command is simple, really, and it's foundational for human civilization. The command is expressed negatively. You shall not. But really, there is a positive aspect to the command as well. You shall not murder is expressed positively as you shall promote life. You shall live with people and in society in such a way as that you, so you consider life sacred, you protect life, and you promote life. Now, in many ways, our own society still recognizes the necessity of this moral law, you shall not murder, We know intuitively as human beings that taking someone's life unlawfully is wrong. Most people still don't need convincing that that is the case. And we still have laws and a justice system in our society that seeks to uphold justice and protect life. Yet we also live in a world that is marred by sin. And we live in a culture that is increasingly becoming a culture of death. So we are aware that almost one million babies are aborted every year in this country. Roughly 60 million children killed since 1973. It's not just a problem in our own country. Estimates are that there are around 70 million abortions in the world every year. Our culture of death is seen in other ways. We see it in the celebration of of so-called gay marriage and transgender ideology. Those ideologies don't promote life. They don't perpetuate life, right? They extinguish life. 
Our neighbors to the north in Canada have some of the most liberal euthanasia laws in the world. Recently, they were debating on whether or not they were going to extend their euthanasia program to the mentally ill. Now, they decided to delay their MAID program until 2027. MAID stands for Medical Assistance in Dying. Now, I could give you other statistics about murder in our own country and violence, and we know that such things are evidence of living in a fallen world where there is hostility between people. But the meaning of the sixth commandment is so much bigger than just murder. As we will see, it has to do with our own heart posture toward our fellow man. It has to do with hatred, with anger, with envy, with all of those matters of the heart that create enmity and hostility with other people. Now, the sixth commandment ultimately points us, as with the rest, to the death of the Lord Jesus and the salvation and the power that is in his death and resurrection that moves us from a place of hostility toward loving others, even at the expense of our own lives. So let's consider this commandment. And first, notice its national and civil application for the people of Israel. So we typically translate this commandment, you shall not kill or you shall not murder. Now I think murder is a better translation than kill, but it's still too narrow. The prohibition of the, con the commandment here forbids murder, but it also forbids manslaughter. Manslaughter is the taking of a human life without premeditation. It might be due to negligence. Right? So it has to do with unlawful killing. Now, not all unlawful killing rises to the level of murder. Sometimes a person's negligence can lead to a loss of life. And because of their negligence, they still bear some responsibility for that person's loss of life. The Sixth Commandment forbids both murder and negligent manslaughter. For example... In Exodus 21, verses 28 through 30, one page over in your Bible, we read this. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. So you see the, the principle here. Like if there's just an accident in Israel, and this ox, all of a sudden, there's an accident and it kills somebody, well, that ox is to be put to death, but the owner is not responsible. But if that ox has a history of goriness, of being violent, and he takes no precautions to protect his neighbors, and that ox kills somebody, then he is responsible for that action. So you see, again, this is an application of the Sixth Commandment. It's not just about murder. It's about manslaughter. We see a similar kind of idea in the parapet laws in Deuteronomy. 
So some of you are familiar with the parapet law. The parapet law in Deuteronomy 22.8 stated that if you build a house, you are to put a parapet on the roof, which is basically like a, a wall or a railing. Now, why would the law prescribe that the people build this railing or wall on their roof? Well, it was to protect life. Apparently, they spent a lot of time on roofs in Israel. And if somebody were to fall off, they could fall and die. But if you have the railing, it is going to protect them. It is going to protect life. It's an extension of the sixth commandment. Live in such a way so that you care about life and preserving life and protecting life. Right? The people of Israel were to concern themselves with such matters. Right? And we shouldn't be negligent either. In our spheres of influence, we should promote life and protect life based on truth and reality. You have to say that in a post-2020 world. Right? So if we have live wires sticking out of a wall of our house, we should do something about it. If you had a swimming pool and your house is the central hub of the neighborhood where all the children come and go, you should probably have some kind of yard around your fence because you are concerned about the lives of others. You see, this is all an extension of the sixth commandment. Well, notice second, the reason given for the sixth commandment in verse 13. That's right, there's no reason. You're paying attention. There's no reason given for the sixth commandment because the reason has already been given back in Genesis. When God established his covenant with Noah, he told Noah this in Genesis 9, 5 through 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made us in his own image. Right? So there's the reason for the sixth commandment. Why is murder forbidden? God made humanity in his image. Humanity is God's special creation, the apex of his creation, the most valuable piece of his creation. Why? Because humanity bears the image of God, and therefore we are not supposed to unlawfully take human life because human life is sacred. Human beings are made in the image of God. That's all you have to say, case closed. Right? These questions about euthanasia and abortion aren't difficult ones because humans bear the divine image. Their lives are to be protected and they are sacred. Right? The point is that God forbids human beings in every generation, in every culture, from unlawfully ending someone's life because humans are made in the image of God. I was telling, I think I was telling my kids the other day, I think I said something like this. Do you know that all the gold and silver and money in the world does not add up to equal the value of your life? Like you can have all the money in the world. It doesn't equal the value of one human life because human beings are made in the image of God and reflect his glory. Therefore, 
you shall not murder. You shall promote life, protect life, consider it sacred. Third, it's important to acknowledge here that not all killing is forbidden by the Bible. You've heard me say that the sixth commandment forbids unlawful killing, and I've used that word intentionally. But the Bible makes room for lawful killing. Some of you are thinking, that sounds like an oxymoron. Lawful killing. But no, there's such a thing as lawful killing. The Westminster Larger Catechism lists three kinds of lawful killing in question 136. Here's what it says. The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away of life, of the life of ourselves or of others, except in the case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. And I think that's right. Three exceptions. Public justice, or capital punishment. Lawful war. And third, necessary defense, or self-defense. First, public justice. So the Bible is clear in both the Noahic Covenant and Romans 13 that God ordains government to uphold justice, sustain life, and execute justice by bearing the sword. Romans 13, verses 1 through 5. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. So don't go steal someone's car. You have no reason to fear, unless you're in a tyrannical society, and we get that. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. You see, God has ordained government. He has given government a certain jurisdiction and authority so that under governmental authority, justice can be executed and upheld. And governmental authority has the legitimate sanction by God to practice capital punishment, right? To execute the murderer. Now, they need to uphold their authority in righteous ways. It would be wrong for government officials to use their authority unlawfully and put people to death unlawfully. The government does not have absolute authority. The government authority is limited by God. So government that engages in genocide or abortion or ethnic cleansing or starves parts of its population is guilty of violating the sixth commandment. But it is entirely lawful for governments to establish and uphold the death penalty. That also means that vigilantism and vengeance is not appropriate for people to do. There are proper jurisdictions that God has established in the world, and we don't take up the sword to seek vengeance by our own hand. We have to appeal to the courts and let them execute justice in a civil society. Second, the commandment uh, does not forbid lawful war. 
lawful war. A nation has a right to protect itself. In war, people will die. But the killing that happens in war is not a violation of the sixth commandment when the war is fought for just reasons and in a just way. So Hitler, trying to establish the Third Reich and invading countries and committing genocide, is evil. But the countries who banded together to oppose him and fight against him were just and right to do so. In Israel's history, in, in Deuteronomy 20, God actually gives the people of instructions pertaining to how they are to engage in warfare. And what you'll find in passages like that and others is that they were to engage in warfare while still being concerned for the well-being and the lives of others. So go read Deuteronomy 20 and you'll notice some of these kinds of instructions. For example, they were all the men were to show up and to come together to see who was going to fight. But if any man had just built a house or planted a vineyard or was betrothed to a woman, or even if they were scared to fight, they could go home. It's a good way to do it. I mean, you don't want the person running through the battlefield screaming, get me out of here, right? That's not going to be a good thing, right? So there was provision for those who were going to fight. And then we're told that when they went into a land, they were to not cut down the fruit trees. Now, why, uh, why, would you, why does that matter? Why are you to leave the fruit trees? Well, I think it's because God was saying you're, ha you're, you're to have a concern for the civilian population, right? Don't totally diminish their livelihood. Conduct your war, but still be concerned about life. I think we've seen kind of a modern-day illustration in this with all the events going on in the Middle East and before Israel has attacked certain regions or some of these hospitals to fight their enemies, they have warned the civilians ahead of time, get out, we're coming. There is still a concern for life, though they are engaging their enemies. So the sixth commandment does not forbid lawful war. Neither, lastly, does it forbid uh, people from defending themselves. Self-defense. Exodus 22, verses 2 through 4, says that if a thief breaks into a house and he is struck and he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. In other words, he paid for his crime with his life, and the one who defended his household is not guilty of murder. So self-defense is not forbidden by the sixth commandment. Remember, the positive application of the sixth commandment is to promote life and to protect life. If you were walking down the street and somebody jumped out from behind the alley and started attacking your wife and children, you would have a moral obligation to engage violently with that person. Why? Because you would be protecting life and loving your neighbor. Pacifism is not an option in that situation. And this is a positive expression of the sixth commandment. Now, fourth, and probably the final point to make regarding this commandment, is that it is, again, not merely about murder and manslaughter. It's its primary application in Israel's history. But it ultimately drives us toward the posture of our hearts toward our fellow man. These commandments given to Israel are primarily external regulations that govern external behaviors in a theocratic nation. 
but they are meant to address and expose deeper issues of the heart. Think about it this way. When your kids are small, maybe you have small kids now, maybe they're grown, but when they were small, you probably gave them simple commands like, do not hit your brother. Right? Everyone's getting in the car. Brother gets in the front seat. Little brother is upset, and he smacks his brother. And you say, do not hit your brother. Now, maybe there's something to be said about the other brother always getting the front seat and deferring to others' interests. That's a conversation for another time. In the moment, you are addressing the most pressing issue, which that is that the younger brother has just unlawfully smacked his brother, and you give him the simple command, do not hit your brother. Now, if you read a lot of Christian parenting books, uh, you will in that moment maybe try to shepherd that child and expose the idols of his heart and why he was so coveting that front seat that is what led him to smack his brother. I haven't figured out how to do that yet in a way that children understand, so I just say, don't hit your brother, and that child needs to learn to submit to my authority. Now, you know as a parent, though, that the command that you gave your child not to hit his brother is actually driving at something much deeper. And your goal is that over time, the child will grow to understand that the command not to hit his brother actually entails so much more. Right? What you want for your child is to grow up to be the kind of person that is compassionate, that exercises some control over his passions, the kind of person that does not resort to unnecessary violence or unlawful violence. You want the child to be generous with his stuff, gracious towards other people. You want him to show love and humility and consider the interests of others more important than his own. And hopefully over time, that child will realize that your law has exposed the sin in his heart, and it will drive him to Jesus. That's the ultimate goal. Those are the bigger issues. It's not just about don't hit your brother. Now, something is similar, something similar is going on with the Ten Commandments. It would make no sense for us to read the Sixth Commandment and think, I'm good on that one. I've never killed anybody. Nobody has ever died due to my negligence. Well, thank God for that. But the command is about so much more. Have we ever been unrighteously angry towards our brother or our sister? Have we ever spewed out venomous words? Have we ever been envious with someone and so despised them and spoken ill of them? Have we ever been so mad that we provoked our spouse to escalate the argument a little higher? And have we ever sought revenge and repaid evil with evil, a harsh word with a harsher word? Do we like to quarrel? Have we harbored bitterness or hate towards someone? You see, those are all under the surface of the sixth commandment. Are we our brother's keeper or our brother's hater? We're honest, we are guilty. Jesus addressed this very thing in the Sermon on the Mount. You can actually turn to Matthew 5 if you would like. We'll finish out our time in Matthew 5. 
Matthew 5, verse 21. We read it earlier before the pastoral prayer. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoever is unrighteously angry, angry justly stands condemned before God. Why? Because their heart is corrupt. Now, it, Jesus is not saying here something that is antithetical or opposed to the Ten Commandments, right? Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. Right? He came to fulfill them, and his teaching is consistent with the law and the prophets. It's just aimed here now for his people, more specifically, at the heart. Again, the Mosaic law was concerned about the heart as well, but it was largely external in nature. It governed behavior in a geopolitical nation. But now, Jesus is reconstituting God's people around his person and his work and his instructions that pertain to life in the new covenant age. So yes, do not murder. But you know what? Unrighteous anger, hatred toward your brother shows your heart is corrupt and that you will be liable to judgment in God's court. See, Jesus is showing his followers what life in his kingdom is going to look like. And it's going to look like people whose hearts are changed who are transformed by the inside out, who are characterized by a law of love. And notice what this looks like in this section in Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The point is not so much instructions on how to handle a, a legal case when someone sues us. The point that Jesus is making is that you care that bad relationships are made right. Because your heart has been changed and you are uncomfortable with hostility and enmity with other people. So forgive. You're going to the temple to practice your religious duties and you remember a brother has something against you? Go be reconciled. Forgive. Don't be characterized by bitterness and anger. How often will we come up with seemingly justifiable reasons why we don't have to obey Jesus' command? and be reconciled with our brothers and sisters, when really we're just so angry that they hurt us. Right? Jesus had something to say about that as well. Look at Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is not undermining judicial systems in our world, government justice. He's talking about the ethics of his kingdom and how we are going to personally relate to his people and even those outside of the church community. I don't have time to linger here, but I, the point, I think, is that disciples of Jesus will be overwhelmingly long-suffering, generous, patient, loving. Yeah, but my brother slapped me in the face. What do you want me to do? He's going to slap me again. Give him your other cheek as well. But he took my tunic. Well, go give him your coat. But he's asking for money. Well, give him more. You see how radical this is? You know, people will talk about other religions and people in those religions as being radicalized when they do something like strap a bomb to their chest and go blow up other people. Now, that's awful, but that is kind of the natural outworking of a corrupt human heart. It's not that radical. You know what's radical in this world? Love your enemies. Be reconciled to the one who has truly, deeply wounded you. And even give them an opportunity to do it again. That's radical. The violation of the sixth commandment is hate. Look what Jesus says in verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It is so easy to love those who love us. It is very difficult to love those who don't love you. But if we don't do that in the church, how are we any different than the world? Even the world loves those who love them. Do not Gentiles and tax collectors do the same? We should be different. Our hearts should not be characterized by anger, enmity, unforgiveness, hatred, because that reflects a murderous heart. James, in the book of James, wrote, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. I don't think he's saying they were literally killing each other. 
He's saying their quarreling and their fighting is the result of a murderous heart. You want what that person has and you don't get it, so you fight. Do you have quarrels with someone? Are you quick-tempered? Are you a generally angry person? Listen to what one theologian has said about the sixth commandment. He has written, anger can dominate one's life, churning beneath the surface and breaking through at the slightest provocation. A child's embarrassing accident, pressure at work, a traffic jam, guilty. You say you're ambitious, but what looks like ambition is envy, a desire to take down the competition. Deep down, you're a murderer. You say you're plain speaking, but in reality, you've turned your tongue into a sword that kills with insults, curses, and frothy outrage. You say you're a leader, but in fact, your simmering anger intimidates everyone around you. Anger curves inward into self-hatred, cleverly deciding itself as humility. The angriest people would be shocked to hear that they're angry, even though they live in continuing defiance of the sixth word. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There is a kind of righteous anger that opposes immorality. But the sun is not to go down on our anger, meaning we're not to be controlled by it, to be governed by it, so that the passions of the flesh is what characterizes the behaviors of our actions. How can anyone ever get there? How can anyone ever measure up to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount? We can't. Because the law exposes our sin. And so what are you going to do? Go to a bunch of humanitarian aid? Start asking people to slap you in the face so you can show them you'll give them the other one also? And so earn some kind of righteousness with God? No, your heart's messed up. My heart's messed up. So what's the solution? Well, unlike the Mosaic law with, that was given on tablets of stone, Jesus gives us his commandments, but then he gives us the power to fulfill them and the grace of forgiveness when we violate them. You see, to save us and change us, Jesus first had to obey the law for us. I mean, if anyone ever promoted life and protected life, it was Jesus. He healed the sick he raised the dead. He spoke the truth. He didn't take life. In fact, he gives life because he gave up his own life. Jesus obeyed the law. He loved his enemies. 1 Peter 2, 23 tells us when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly faith in God's justice. He was falsely accused. He was beaten and crucified. Yet while on the cross, what did he do? He prayed for his killers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you see, he extends grace and forgiveness to people with murderous hearts, people like us. 
And it's that grace that saves us. It's that grace that causes our anger, our bitterness, our wrath, our hostility, our demand that people repent according to our expectations to melt away because we have been given the love and the mercy and the kindness and the grace of God in Christ. And when you know that, that love then bends outward in your relationships. You can extend it to your spouse, to your children, to your neighbors, to your fellow believers, even to your enemies, because that is the power of the gospel. Jesus said at the front end of the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What is going to be a compelling witness to the watching world in our own church? It's going to be when our hearts are so transformed by the grace of God that we extend love and grace and forgiveness to one another and kindness even to our enemies while upholding the truth and proclaiming the truth. God help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Your law, Lord, it exposes so much about our hearts. And the grace of your gospel is the power to transform them. Lord, if there is anyone here today whose heart feels the conviction of their own sin, Lord, I pray that they would not rest on any merits or things that they are participating in, but that they would flee to the cross where they stand exposed, naked and ashamed, and see your justice against sin, that what required, what was required to accomplish our salvation was the crucifixion of the Son, and that they would see the love and the grace in the gospel of how much you love guilty sinners, that you would indeed pour out your wrath on your Son in our place, condemned he stood, and through his blood has sealed our pardon. Lord, help us to really know and believe and stand next to the cross so that our lives will be increasingly characterized not by anger, not by wrath, not by jealousy, not by envy, Lord, but by a spirit of love and humility that would seek the interests of others even, Lord, by putting our own desires aside. What a beautiful expression of the church that is. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. We trust God will use this sermon in your life. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like more information about Crossroads, email us at info at crossroadschurchutah.org. That's info at crossroadschurchutah.org.